the Anesthesia Podcast. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this Anesthesia Journal live stream. There is very limited evidence about the relative effectiveness of emergency surgery versus non-emergency surgery strategies for patients with common acute conditions. This lack of evidence means that there is likely to be considerable practice variation in the NHS in England. The ESORT study, which was published just last night and is available online and is free to access, uh, aims to compare the effectiveness of emergency surgery for, or not for five acute abdominal conditions. Joining us this morning, we have three authors of this excellent new paper uh, as we go through some of the content, how it was done and what the key findings are. Uh, we have Professors Moonsing, Hinchliffe and Grieve. So welcome all. Um, and then we'll start with the first question, which is about the study itself. So um, just as an open question, can you give some background to the study and tell, it, tell us why it was needed uh, and what its main aims were? Yeah, thanks for that, Mike. So, so building on what you've um, you've mentioned, when when Robin Ramani and I started to put this study together, we looked at the literature, and we saw reports like Gerft had found massive variation across NHS trusts in England in rates of emergency surgery for these common acute conditions. So, we're talking about things like acute appendicitis or gallstone disease, and we looked at the international literature and we found some trial evidence, but not much. Um, so there were either no trials or the trials were inadequate from the viewpoint of NHS decision making. And we felt that that led to this wide clinical uncertainty about whether emergency surgery was better uh, than alternatives such as a watch and wait strategy, antibiotics, appendicitis or, or later surgery for gallstone disease. And so this study directly aimed to plug some of that gap in the literature. So we looked at the relative effectiveness of emergency surgery versus alternatives uh, for people with five big acute conditions. So those are appendicitis, diverticular disease, gallbladder disease, gallstone disease, uh, acute hernia, and intestinal obstruction. So that was the main purpose of the study. Sure, and uh, it was a really interesting primary outcome. We're always talking about outcomes that are of interest to patients or interest to us or uh, various other parties and this outcome that was used days alive and out of hospital or days alive and at home um, during that 90-day period is really interesting because it's something we see more and more in these papers and it's arguably something that is important to patients because if they're in hospital and they're having operations and uh, or treatments then the number of days where they can be out and alive and and, and home and, and back to normal that, that's really important for them um, but why was that outcome selected particularly? Why did you choose 90 days? Why um, did you use that to compare the effectiveness of surgery versus these other strategies? Yeah, Mike, I think you, you raise a really interesting point. And, and clearly, when we were designing this study, um, we incorporated the views of patients uh, and clinicians. So we had clinical panels and, and, and patients and public panels. And something that the uh, the patients uh, stressed was to, to identify an outcome that was actually relevant to them. Uh, clearly, mortality was relevant to them, uh, as was uh, spending time outside of hospital. And I think as we got better with particularly uh, critical care uh, and with advances in medicine and surgery and perioperative care, we've been able to keep patients alive much longer. Um, and uh, it's been pretty obvious that uh, it's possible to keep patients alive, often in hospital in critical care environments, 
uh, and that's something that patients really wanted us to to work with. Uh, in terms of um, what we're talking here, we're talking about emergency surgical conditions, but clearly they are quite different conditions: uh, appendicitis, gallstone disease, etc. Uh, and, and we wanted a uh, an outcome measure which would uh, really help us synthesize that sort of data. Um, uh, and in essence, we're aware of the sort of increasing traction that days alive out of, and out of hospital uh, to 90 days are, are, are getting now. Uh, you know, clearly it's become a standardized endpoint uh, in clinical outcome studies with the standardized endpoints for perioperative medicine group, really highlighting this is a, a really important outcome measure. And I think it's really a composite that captures important aspects of quality of care. And obviously it's that patient focus. But probably lastly, and in some ways most importantly, uh, we were using routine data. Uh, and this is an outcome that we could actually capture relatively straightforwardly and uh, feasibly using this routine data set. Yeah, it's really um, becoming an important way of being able to measure things, I guess. Uh, anything else to add about the outcome? Um, um, from yeah, uh, just to say, Mike, that so so um, to add to what already Rob said, um, there's been some work done um, in emergency laparotomies. So remember, this study was about emergency surgery versus not. So the considerations are slightly different because you want to get that slightly longer term view, particularly if um, in the in the group that don't have surgery initially, uh, about whether you know after a month or, or longer they're still bouncing in and out of hospital and, and so, or indeed either patient. So work done in the emergency laparotomy audit cohort um, found days alive and out of hospital at 30 days to be a valid measure. Um, and I think for this study, um, the 90 day endpoint is a really important one because of that potential for the, for the initial episode to really not be over um, in this cohort, depending on the initial management decisions. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that really fascinated me about the methods as well as um, the question and the outcome chosen was how you're able to take this routinely collected data uh, and, and do some very clever things with it as well, um, because it, it would be very difficult, for example, to do a randomized control trial of um, surgery or not for appendicitis, because we all know that um, um that decisions one of clinical judgment and there might not be equipoise to do that but you're able to do something called instrument variable analysis um and that was sort of used to approximate the random assignment or random allocation between uh, arms of a of a trial um and you're able to do that with retrospective data which i found was fascinating um so how did you use this technique of instrument variable analysis um and um are you able to summarise exactly what that is just for the just for the viewers out there? Because I think it's quite complicated. Yeah. So, I mean, Mike, with this routine data, your big concern is confounding that there's going to be some big prognostic differences between the groups that's not captured in an admin data set like HETS. So the selling point of instrumental variable analysis is it can tackle that head on and balance the comparison groups according to things that you've measured, like age, but things that you haven't, like severity. And the, the way we did this wasn't completely left field in that a colleague of ours worked in a similar problem in the US using claims data. And they developed this instrument um, around the historic rates of emergency surgery. 
in their case at the, at the surgeon level, in our case in the NHS, we looked at variation in ES rates across hospitals, which did vary massively and really helped us uh, support the major assumptions behind such an analysis. So the first is that the, the variation in rates actually predicts whether an individual patient gets emergency surgery or not. And it ticked that box. It definitely did that. The more challenging assumption is that it doesn't have a direct effect on the patient's outcome. And we got some support for that. And we did alternative analyses, which demonstrated that our assumption seemed reasonable. So in essence, yes, it can mimic randomization insofar as it balances everything. It cannot be claimed to be the same as randomization. And it makes these assumptions, uh, which we judge were supported uh, pretty well in this, in this example. Yeah, and I'd encourage anyone that reads the paper to have a really good read of the method section because there's an awful lot of um, fascinating information there that shows how you're able to uh, make these assumptions and, and get around some of the problems of confounding and, and various other issues. Um, how did you choose the five main acute conditions? I'm sure that there were probably a, a long list of things to start with and you're able to get down to those five things. How, how did you manage to do that? Well, we, we had a, a long list of emergency surgical conditions, Mike, and I think as um, Richard's alluded to, we were aware of the variation in practice, which is obviously of a concern to, to, to the NHS and to patients and to surgeons, uh, we, perhaps um, as a result of a lack of evidence in this area and has been highlighted by GERFT, getting it right first time. Um, we clearly wanted to identify surgical conditions which were common, and, and I think we did that. Um, and we, we wanted to identify areas which were relevant to, to surgeons, uh, and we use our clinical panel heavily to, to inform that, as, did, as we did with, with the patients. Uh, and on reviewing the data, it was obvious that there was often clinical equipoise among surgeons about whether uh, they should initiate a strategy of the upfront emergency surgery or a non-emergency surgery strategy. And clearly there are a number of emerging randomized clinical trials in this sort of area, in appendicitis, for example, in diverticulitis. And clearly this is a moving field. People are becoming slightly more brave about these sorts of clinical trials and randomizing patients uh, not to surgery. So um, yes, we started off with a, with a long list of emergency surgical conditions and for a variety of reasons, whittled it down to those five key conditions. So for example, we excluded things like bowel ischemia, which although uh, really uh, very difficult conditions to manage uh, on balance, we felt that there was probably a lack of equipoise and it was a relatively rare condition. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, these really are five common uh, problems that we see from time to time, which makes the um, findings really useful for clini all clinicians out there across the country and across the world, world, arguably as well. But what were the main findings from the study? How, how did we were able to use the methods um, that we've discussed to try and come out with the clinical findings that are in the paper? So there were three things that came out. One was that overall, uh, for each of the conditions, um, the days, and out of, days alive and out of hospital on average at 90 days were similar between the comparison groups. And this seemed to have strong face validity. I mean, it was saying almost from a clinical viewpoint that overall, you know, 
pretty much these things are similar. That concealed quite important differences at the subgroup level, though. So the crucial example that we highlight in the paper is around frailty. Uh, so people with severe levels of frailty at admission had way worse outcomes uh, following emergency surgery than if they, they didn't have emergency surgery. Um, and conversely, uh, people who were fit without frailty at admission uh, did somewhat better for a couple of the conditions, notably uh, obstruction, uh, if they did have emergency surgery uh, than if they didn't. And uh, so those seem to be, you know, quite important findings uh, for me for, for decision making. And Romani, do you have any implications for um, anaesthetists and perioperative physicians out there? Um, because obviously um, anaesthetists might feel that the decision to operate lies a lot of the time with the um, uh, surgeons doing the operation, but obviously it's a bit more complicated than that usually, isn't it? Sure, and of course, and I, I'm sure Rob would agree, you know, these decisions are taken as a multidisciplinary, multidisciplinary team of which the patient or their advocate or both is a really important member. Um, so um, what I think this study adds is that, you know, if we think about the brand framework for how one discusses um, decision-making with patients, so the benefits, risks, alternatives, or do-nothing approaches to whatever it is that's being considered, in this case, emergency surgery upon an emergency presentation to hospital, I think what this study adds is, is a really important thing around the alternatives or the do-nothing approach, because one of the things that um, is frustrating, I think, about for all of us is um, perhaps particularly in emergency surgery, we've got amazing data on outcomes for patients that have the operations and very little good data on um, the outcomes for patients that don't have the operations. So, um, so, so, so what this study, I think, helps with is in those patients who are frailer, um, who have more comorbidities, the nature of the discussion I would expect the team to have, the team including the surgeon and the anaesthetist um, with the patients and their family to include the fact that in this particular group of patients, it's likely that they will be spending more time at home um, and, uh, or at least out of hospital, can't be sure that it was at home, but out of hospital alive within the first three months than if they went for emergency surgery and help as one of the many things that we would consider in decision-making mm -hmm. that can be helpful. I think there's some stuff that we, because of the nature of the data that we were looking at, you can't answer. So the important thing is, you know, we think that being out of hospital and alive is an important quality measure. It's not just about survival. It's also about, um, about, you know, where you are and all of that, but it doesn't give us the full picture of that clearly. Um, and I think that's where the future work needs to come in, because um, the more patient centred the outcomes we can look at, the better. This is a great start using big data. Um, uh, but now the signal that's been generated does need to be investigated further. Absolutely. Um, and I think this really does add to our uh, knowledge of shared decision making for emergency surgery. Um, one of the things that struck me is, is about frailty. and. Um, how that was teased out as a really important factor for these patients. Um, are there any barriers to measuring frailty in the emergency setting? Say you've got someone that's coming in with a with an acute condition. Uh, are we still still able to use the techniques and tools that we have 
available to say how frail someone is and to use that um, as part of our decision making for these patients. Yeah, Mike, I think you've identified, you know, one of the key subgroups that we really want to shine a spotlight on it, you know, the frailty, the particularly severely frail group of patients. And that was one of the key findings of, of the study. Um, I think actually the barriers are actually coming down. Um, there's certainly an, an awareness of frailty, multimorbidity uh, in, in medicine. There's a lot of research going on in that area. Um, and, you know, I think with the with the availability, for example, of online calculators, you know, it's quite easy now to, to calculate a frailty score, the Edmonton or whichever you choose. Um, and I think things like the, you know, the initiatives such as the, 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 the NILA um, group have really shown that it is, it is possible to calculate frailty in, in everyday clinical practice in, in, in patients undergoing emergency laparotomy. So really... I think things are changing and um, hopefully this will sort of shine a, an additional light on the importance of frailty assessment. But clearly it's not a binary thing and, and these decisions are complex, but it's all about uh, forecasting uh, and being able to give patients and, and clinicians the appropriate uh, information uh, on which to base their decision. Um, so yes, I think it's changing. I think the barriers are coming down. And I, Mike, if I may, I, I'd agree with that. And I think, um, I think so. The, the measure of frailty that was used in this study was um, based on because it was a study of administrative data. It was a, an administrative data frailty measure that's been validated previously um, and found to you know be be a valid measure and, and match up with clinical assessments. But but I think um, you know there. Uh, I think one of the things that people struggle with are first of all you know knowledge and and so on just knowing that it's an important thing to to include as part of our preoperative assessment or our initial assessment of patients the second is people um don't know which measure to use and increasingly as um i um i get a bit older and why maybe not wiser i kind of start to think well actually in any form of risk assessment the detail of the measure is much less important than just the action of doing it. So if I'm in a pre-op assessment clinic, I use the Edmonton frailty scale because I think that gives you a great, um, not just assessment of whether the patient's frail or not, but where their frailty lies. Is it cognitive? Is it um, physical? You know, and, and all of those sorts of things. But equally in the emergency setting when everyone's under time pressure, I think the clinical frailty scale, the Rockwood one, is a really good straightforward one. Um, I think it's important to read the notes rather than just look at the pictures. I think, you know, that's a trap that people can fall into. Um, but it takes a few seconds. And um, I think the more we can build it into electronic health records, the more we can just make it part of the normal standard of care, the better. Yeah, really um, important. Um Aspect of the study, I think, is, is this identification of risk factors and measuring these things and incorporating them into decision making. I think that's one of the great things about this study is it really adds useful clinical um, information that we're all able to go out and use now to go and discuss it with patients. But as you say, it's uh, um, perhaps a, a signal that we need to um, go out now and confirm. And there are lots of limitations um, that are discussed in the paper. Um, essentially, we're using retrospective routinely captured data. Um, some of it may be incomplete or inaccurate. Uh, and obviously, there's measures used to correct for confounding as well. Um, 
so many might ask whether or not the paper demonstrates causality between those risk factors and otherwise are we able to do that or, or do we need to do something else instead? I guess, Mike, outside of randomization, you've always got to make the claim about causality. I suppose what we try to do in this paper is to be very open and say we have this approach, instrumental variable uh, analysis, which can give you causality, but it makes a couple of major assumptions. Um, and this is the support that we have found for these assumptions. Um, and then in a way, you know, um, we've been very transparent, I think, about the requirements. So, you know, if you believe that this is an instrumental variable based on what we've reported there, then that implies causality. Uh, Rob or Romani, any, anything to add to that? Or, or perhaps what we could discuss is the next step, really, which is um, future research. Um, and um, arguably, this um, study can now be used as a springboard to say, well, actually, you know, now what we need is a, is a proper RCT of um, uh, some of these conditions for um the decision to operate or, or try something different um can you see anything like that happening in the future yeah i think that's a real possibility uh mike and i think this gives us the uh affords us the opportunity to, to do that uh clearly some um really innovative researchers have been able to start to dip the toe into these sorts of random difficult surgical perioperative care randomized clinical trials or randomizing patients to surgery or to no surgery. And obviously no surgery, no urgent surgery means a variety of things. It can mean uh, IV fluids, antibiotics, uh, radiological drainage, et cetera. But I think really this is the first time that we've had the, a good opportunity using this novel, novel methodology to, to assess the relative effectiveness of, of emergency surgery and particularly identify subgroups of patients who we might go on to then perform RCTs in. Uh, and I think that's really the strength of this paper. It identifies those groups where there's real clinical uncertainty and perhaps some uh, uh, benefits from a non-emergency surgery approach. So clearly the frailty group are, are one where I think we've got our eye on, you know, is there an opportunity there to, to do some further work and potentially launch an RCT at some stage in the future? Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think in addition to the identification of the subgroups, I think what it's um, also done is we know now the, the really unanswered question, which is about the, the quality of life, the quality of recovery for patients, depending on the intervention or not approach. So, you know, when we uh, when these trials are developed, which I hope they will be, um, including you know, so I think to include a days alive and out of hospital measure would be a really good one. But I think we can do even more in a prospective study to look at things like disability free survival um, at different endpoints to look at complications specifically um, and health related quality of life measures like the EQ5D. And I think that's really important. Um, and I think in the younger cohort or the less frail cohort, um, it's again, if if it was considered by patients and by surgeons and anaesthetists and others that there was still a question to answer there, I think looking at the health economics of that as well is going to be really important too, because not just for the system, but also for the patients, because the, the younger patients are going to be wanting to get back to work and all of those sorts of things. 
Yeah, so on that, I mean, we've we've got some extra funding from the sponsor from NRHR to look particularly at people with multiple long-term conditions. Uh, so uh, Ramani and Rob have both alluded to, you know, the possibilities afforded by non-emergency surgery strategy and maybe be that's an area where where a bit more is needed to think about how we can optimize uh, care for these uh, these groups and it's not just about delays and capacity constraints that are encouraging lack of early surgery for them it's actually potentially to the patient's benefit in terms of quality of life and other things we weren't able to measure in this study so you know that's a, a space to watch in a way in that we are doing further work um, on people with multiple long-term conditions well, I'm really delighted to see the paper online. Uh, as I say, it was published last night at 11 o'clock in the evening and it's available now, it's open access. Uh, I'd encourage everyone to, to read the full paper as always um, and really have a look at those methods used, which I think are really fascinating. And uh, I enjoyed uh, reading the paper uh, in full myself as well. Um, it's It's quite rare that we have a paper where we can actually see something published and 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 really use it in our discussions with patients on a day-to-day -day basis so uh, congratulations to the three of you and the author team for that um this um uh, broadcast will be made into a podcast which will be available on spotify and itunes etc uh, and you can also watch this back as well at any time which is available forever um, so thank you very much everyone uh, thanks for um joining us and thanks for your time this morning um and um, we will see you hopefully for the next live stream, which will be hopefully uh, the week after next, where we're going to talk about a paper which looked at um, ventilated patients with COVID-19 and, and how the right ventricle might be a little bit more important than we perhaps first um, thought early on in, in, uh, in the pandemic. So thank you very much uh, and see you again soon. The Anesthesia Podcast.